Today on the Bible Archives, we are going to again talk about Eucharist. Last episode, we looked at Eucharist as sacrament, and you have sort of capital S sacrament and lowercase s sacrament. And the goal is for us to encounter mystery in a way that informs how we encounter all of the world. And so using a capital S sacrament that has been ordained and instituted over time with shared meaning and shared memory and shared history, that's really valuable to help mediate that experience so that it changes how we live. But before we get into what those changes should be, what the effects of participating in the sacrament of Eucharist should be, we need to talk about Eucharist as Eucharist. So we're going to break down a couple things, a couple issues, and try to set the stage so we can jump into all of those effects next time. But first, um, let's, let's look at how this particular sacrament came to be and how it works and what it's supposed to be generally doing, and we'll get into specifics later. Um, so first we need to start with the uh, importance of meals in Jesus's work, in church history, um, even in the Hebrew scriptures. And you can look all over the place, and food is involved. You know, I come from the perspective that food should be really important as a part of this specific religious tradition. However, food was important to a lot of religious and cultural traditions throughout history. So if we were to start with um, the, the, the biblical narrative, you have a bunch of them, right? Oh. You have uh, feeding of the multitudes, is is one and so and and all of these you should be able to see glimpses of within eucharist right so when uh when you talk about eucharist understanding jesus jesus's feeding of the multitude should kind of inspire your imagination a little bit you also have a lot of meals that jesus has he has meals with insiders with outsiders um with the elite with the non-elite um, with the more holy leaders of Israel, but also with the uh, profane members of the community. Right? So he has all sorts of meals. Um, you have Passover, and I mentioned that last time that I, I, I have a, you can argue this, but I am of the opinion that Eucharist and Passover are intimately connected. Um, you also have Leviticus, which again, I think is instrumental in understanding the context of uh, the ritual, right? So if Passover informs the content of the, the content of the ritual itself, uh, Leviticus informs the structure of the ritual, you could say. I don't know if that makes any sense or not. Mm -hmm. uh, jumping back, I mean, you have, you have the prophets interact with food. Uh, King David interacts with food. Genesis interacts with food um, from the beginning, after the flood, uh, when Abraham uh, welcomes the, the three strange people, uh, the three strange figures, we'll say, uh, in hospitality. Um, Daniel interacts with food. That That's all over the place. I'm not trying to give a full summary here. Um, 
Emmaus is one. Um, and I, I've, I think that one's important. You know the Emmaus story? Oh, sure. The, yeah. The resurrection morning story. Yeah. And he was it, cooking and they didn't recognize him. No, before that. Oh. Yeah, oh, so that one's they're in walking John. and talking. Yeah, they're walking and talking. And they don't recognize him until he breaks bread. Until he breaks bread. Yeah, sure. So there's something about breaking bread that's that's really important. Uh, you do have you do have the resurrection breakfast, mm-hmm. if we were to call it that. Um, Jesus gives parables about food. When you get into the uh, post Jesus Acts, the church is centered around meals. Um, uh, the book of Revelation includes meals and food and mm-hmm. tables. So that's all over the place. Yeah. I was going to say, don't forget about um, God giving manna. I mean, to me, that's almost like this is one of the places where God directly interacts with human beings and food in a way to say, this is what my uh, qualities are as opposed to the place that you just left Egypt. So, you know, you have uh, Egypt and the way they were working hard in the fields and yet they were not benefiting from those things. And yet here now they have food given to them almost like a grace. It's like this food is just given to you. All you have to do is go yeah. pick it up. But then they had ways that they had to interact with that too that taught them how they were restricted from just, you know, saving it or using it. They were. And Israel is uh, definitely childlike in its faith. Because it gets food after it complains enough <laughs> right. to get the food. So the idea that a meal would be the center of a ritual kind of makes sense within within the tradition. Um, and you can go back to the, the ancient Jewish folks saw the altar where they would give their offerings. They saw that as a table. And they also saw their table as an altar. So the interaction with food... It's it's essential to uh, the the ancient Jewish practice, but also the Christian one. And even within the Christian tradition, Jesus makes this case in, in Luke 14, where he talks about how uh, how they interact with meals should be directly opposed to how the Roman culture interacted with with meals. So to have a distinguishing practice through a meal actually makes a lot of sense. However, we also have to go back to something we talked about last episode. They didn't come up with the idea of using a meal to ritually engage with something. Like this was something that all sorts of other people did. Oh, absolutely. Um, From way back, you see food taboos that identify people. For example, Hindu people don't eat beef, don't eat cows. Um, And... We see the Buddhists are often vegetarian. We might see, even with the Jewish people, of course, um, identified by the fact that they might keep kosher. So there's a lot of different ways that we'll see foods through all the different religious practices as being a way of identifying them either as an ethnicity or as um, a particular religion. But there was, a, specifically within pagan traditions, ancient pagan traditions, there were a lot of rituals that involved food, was not oh, there? Absolutely. Um, the goddess Asherah, the women there would make the rounds of bread and they would use those in their rituals. And they often had sacred animals that they would either eat or would not eat because they were a sacred animal. Um, sometimes they wouldn't eat uh, honey or they wouldn't eat sheep or they wouldn't eat cows. And some of that kind of stuff goes all the way back to those kinds of rituals. 
And then we have certain foods that are eaten at different seasons. There might be certain kinds of cakes that are made, um, certain kinds of vegetables and things that are in season that are important to have on the altar. So a lot of that goes back to pagan rituals and pagan ideas that they had for their gods and goddesses. So I think it's fair to say that Jesus and previously the Jewish people didn't come up with the idea of using food as a way to express their particular perspective. What is unique is the perspective they are articulating is uh, diametrically opposed to a lot of these traditions. And as we look at the, the biblical portrayal of meals, we have to start getting into what were they trying to say with them? Because again, the sacrament itself, the ritual itself is not the point. It's what it does to the people. It's how it fosters the imagination of who's involved. Um, I want to make a real quick uh, aside to Passover. And uh, this content is, it can actually be found elsewhere. Uh, If you go back previously to our uh, Holy Week content that we had put out uh, earlier in 2020, we, we, we've already kind of tried to make this point artistically of the role of Passover and um, communion. I do take the perspective that when Jesus uh, did this meal with his followers, it was in the form of Passover. I do not think that it was a true Seder meal. Um, and I do think there was a lot of creative licensure being used. Um, but I think the context of it is intentionally Passover. All of this is just to say that whatever you do with Eucharist, I think you have to at least consider that it should be informed by the Passover meal and the Exodus narrative. If you want to see how we specifically interpret that, go back, listen to that audio We're not going to waste time on that now. What's important about that is if that is true, and specifically if the interaction of Eucharist with all of these different uh, portrayals of food, with Leviticus as an example of how the ritual should be structured and viewed, uh, with Passover informing the content of what Jesus is doing, If all of that is true, that makes Eucharist really broad. And so I'm going to offer uh, my first complaint uh, in the spirit of Israel in the wilderness. My first complaint, but uh, also a critique that I have, that communion in the 20th century, especially in America, it took on a really distinct perspective. And, And my evidence for this is mostly anecdotal, right? I don't have data that makes this case, but uh, data is just the plural form of anecdote, right? (laughs) Communion, at least in my experience, uh, in the context of the community that I'm a part of and communities that I've been a part of, it became very individualistic and uh, was consumed by the idea that it's for penitence, right? Communion became about you being forgiven for your sins, and if we want to be even more deliberate about this critique, for your sins that week. And so you had to take it again the next week so you could be forgiven for your sins throughout that week. 
I'm not going to say that this is wrong. I do think that forgiveness plays a role, but I think it is a singular note in a larger song. And if we, if we only allow it to be that, especially the penance part and the individualism part, we are missing so much depth. And for anyone who has been told that that's all this is, I think you just, you're owed an apology because you have been kept from um, so much that the Eucharist is about. So we're stopping to kind of say, you know, Eucharist is a sacrament, and we're going to get into some other things in, in the, the vast array of the, the song that this is supposed to be. But we need to stop and go, Eucharist is Eucharist. Has has a ton of meaning that I think we've lost, and it's like it's like we've said that eating is synonymous with eating at McDonald's. No, that is one way you can eat. That is one component of the definition, and it happens to be one that you know might you might want to reconsider <laughs> as making the whole thing. So I want to confront that uh, Eucharist is not just about forgiveness. And it's not just about you. And this is the point we made in last episode. We need to re-encounter this, right? We need to understand the, the sacramentality of it, right? And that it exists as a means to a certain uh, disposition in the world, a certain ethic, a certain imagination. Um, but we, we also need to see that it's bigger than just forgiveness and it's bigger than just you. So is, is a Eucharist about grace? Well, yeah. But here's what I'd say about that. If grace is only about your forgiveness, we have also then misunderstood grace because whatever grace that we can find within Eucharist, it's a grace that interacts with every single inch of the world. So it's something that we celebrate, but it's also something that we live according to for the sake of everything, right? So, So we have to have a really big picture of of Eucharist. It's the action of a community being formed into a cruciform kind of body for the sake of everything. Now, we're, we're going to have to unpack what that is, and we'll, we'll do that next episode. But to kind of draw, uh, draw these two things back together of sacrament and Eucharist, you're eating and drinking consecrated bread and wine in a community. So there's this moment with the presence of God, right? that mystery. Mm-hmm. You're interacting with that imminence that's also transcendent. And in so doing, you're embodying what it means to follow Jesus. So there's something about the specific elements and the, the, the meaning they take on in that moment that's informing an ethical practice. And as you're emphasizing that presence, being in the midst of your community and this mysterious encounter with grace, you, you should be considering everything that this means for the world. So in comparison of, uh, I take communion so I can be forgiven of my sins for that week, we have to see that Eucharist covers love, it covers grace, it covers selflessness, forgiveness, imminence, mystery, healing, nourishment, holiness, salvation, restoration, health, eschatology, conviction, repentance, conversion, sanctification. You're assured of the gift of life while confessing how we've missed being that gift, and you're nourished in that moment 
while having something that sustains your journey towards becoming the image of God with a tactile example of how to get there. I, I, if, we were to, if we were to try to paint this all together, Eucharist is about healing. It's the healing of you while also impacting the healing of the world through you. We have to see that we have a ritual that empowers and enables us to see ourselves and the world more clearly so as to live in the world more holistically. That's my hope for how we begin to approach Eucharist. We have to, we have to make a case, though, that all of these things are true, that that whole list is actually happening. You know, how does it deal with eschatology? What do you mean that it covers everything, including you, whoever yeah. you are, um, and whatever you are, right? Right. We have to make a case that that's embedded in the sacrament, Uh but it's worth it's worth stopping before we get into those specifics to go, do we need to reconsider what Eucharist is? First as a sacrament, so that was last last episode, but also what its purpose is. Because this is the primary tactile way to shape our imagination and to form our ident- our identity. That that's if Eucharist is not essential, then it's a medium to create imagination and form identity. Now, we have to get into what that is, mm-hmm. how that works, what what it's supposed to look like. But we have to we kind of have to put Eucharist in its proper place. Um both as it, it's mediating something, but also you can't confine this to one very very basic definition and say that's all it is. In so doing, you, you, you miss a lot. That's, that's not a great way to traverse the world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you think about if you are in a mainline tradition, you're usually going to have um, a pretty extensive liturgy that precedes communion or Eucharist. And that whole thing is meant to communicate and form what's going on. And it covers everything. So in the Methodist tradition, which, which you know, that's what we're a part of here, it's called the Great Thanksgiving. A lot of traditions call it the Great Thanksgiving. If you go through and you read that, it's long because it's trying to include a ton of different parts. Mm-hmm. If it was so simple, we could just get up there and be like, this is so you get forgiven this week. So hurry up and eat it and, and make this happen so we can all get out of here. It, it seems to be trying to do something else. And again, connecting it back to sacramentality this meal becomes the filter through which we live and move and have our being. This becomes the actual embodiment for what we believe we are supposed to do and how we believe we are supposed to see everything. If that is true, not only in it being a sacrament, capital S, is it really important. If that's true, whoa, we don't want to miss this. Yeah. Like, there's a reason that John Wesley said, you should take this every day because why not instill your uh, perspective of the world with something as holistic as that? Um, so I, I kind of, uh, it makes me sad if communities that, you know, like we do it once a year. Okay, uh, I, I understand that, especially if you're be trying to be true to the Passover tradition. Well done there. But uh, what are you missing? Like, what else are you filling that time with? So 
We need to see Eucharist as Eucharist. But we also need to recognize that it's called lots of different things. And each of the different names for Eucharist has a specific angle that it offers. So the different words for Eucharist, I do not think are interchangeable, but I do think they are all necessary. And so what are all of the different things going on in Eucharist? How, how should we understand it in this very large way? And how does that implicate our interaction with the meal? That's what we're going to get into in the next episode. And then we got to go back and see what Paul meant in discerning the body.